Well, when I was in Africa a little while back, I got to cross off uh, my bucket list, something I'd always wanted to do. I, I got to go on a safari in Kenya in the Maasai Mara Game Park, which was an absolute dream. It's essentially like a, a wildlife treasure hunt. You're kind of driving all around trying to find these pockets of rare and amazing animals. And there's different companies, different tour companies that um, are kind of competition. But when you're in the game park, they kind of work together to try to track down different pockets of wildlife. So if you see a, a van in front of you a couple hundred yards, like beeline to the left, you'd follow them over a knoll. And sure enough, there'd be like a, a herd of hippo or something amazing to behold. And it was a uh, it was incredible, and it was kind of bizarre moving to the L.A. area. And I realized that you guys kind of have a similar enterprise, um, except instead of looking for rare animals, people pay money to go on tours to find rare people. Um, they call it celebrity tours. This is actually one that I saw personally. It's called City Safari Hollywood. And uh, so people seeking out people, unfortunately, uh, one reviewer gave it three stars because they didn't have a sighting on their safari. I guess the celebrities weren't feeding on that certain day. And uh, it's a bizarre phenomenon, isn't it? It's a bizarre phenomenon. Even one of the questions you get living in the Los Angeles uh, County is people back home, have you ever seen somebody famous? Right? Have you ever seen somebody famous? And I was wondering, what is this inclination in us? Why do we do this? Well, I think this is part of the reality. We all have a deep desire to be significant to be special. So even if we get close to someone we don't even know personally, but the world deems significant, well, it feels good. It feels good. We like to be close to that. We like to rub up against that. There's something satisfying in our souls when uh, we are part of something that's cool and significant. You've probably experienced this personally. Maybe you were gifted VIP tickets once to a certain show, and you know you walked in a little bit different that night, had a little more of a swagger you knew that night you were a very important person and you would be treated as such. We want to feel significant. And when we are close to those who are significant by worldly standards, we want some of that to splash onto us. Well, in our text today, James is going to speak into this inclination, each one of our hearts, to show partiality to those who have social swagger and specifically in his context, to rich people, according to their standards. Now, the tension between establishing a sort of social hierarchy in the church, James actually already addressed. This was pervasive in the culture there. In chapter 1, he wrote, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. So even here, we see James trying to level the playing field, recognizing that the cross of Jesus Christ is the great leveler of all humanity. So the church's value system should be wildly different from the cultures. In the world, the more money you have, the greater you are revered and valued. In the church, money or social standing is completely irrelevant to your value. It is irrelevant to your value. The gospel is the leveler. And now today, James circles back around to this situation in the church, writing this. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality, or favoritism as the NIV translates, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
So here's where we're going today. We're going to look at four reasons why the faithful should never play favorites from the text, and then we'll end with a bold exhortation from our brother James. The first reason why the faithful should never play favorites is this. Jesus alone is the Lord of glory. Verse 1 again, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality or favoritism as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. To be a Christian is to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to hold the faith. Christianity isn't just an empty bag that we fill with things that we want, a little morality here, a little fellowship there, hopefully some fire insurance on the back end, and we'll call it a day. No, that is not what Christianity is. Christianity is the word that we use to recognize an objective reality, namely that Jesus, the living Christ, is ruling right now as the Lord of all creation. There is nothing that is not under his lordship. And so James is saying, in effect, to say that you hold this faith in one hand and then practice favoritism in the other hand is impossible. They are mutually exclusive. They cannot coexist. You can't say Jesus is Lord and then show partiality or favoritism. But what does he mean when he says the Lord of glory? I don't think he just used that phrase accidentally. He's looking at one nuance of Christ's lordship. Well, of course it means that Christ is glorious. He's the Lord of glory. He reigns in majesty and beauty, and his glory pervades every facet of our existence. The reason we marvel at sunsets is because Jesus Christ created that. He is the Lord of glory. But I think James is getting at something else with this, too. In this context... Jesus being the Lord of glory is not just the glorious one, but he is the one who bestows glory, who gives value and dignity to us. Our value is not on a sliding scale based on our performance, but our value is based completely on who Jesus, the Lord of glory, says about us. He is the Lord of glory, and he bestows it on whom he wills. And what does he say about us? It's an amazing thing what he says about us. He says that you are holy, you are beloved, you are redeemed when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He bestows it on you, and this is the gold standard of your value, not what you do. It's what Jesus Christ says over you as the Lord of glory. But when we show favoritism within the church, when we give honors to those whom we think are more impressive or influential or affluential or famous or rich or whatever, James is saying we are attempting to dethrone Jesus as the Lord of glory. We are saying, in effect, you are not the Lord of glory. I now am, and I will sovereignly bestow dignity and glory on whoever I will. To that effect, James is saying, well, then you're not holding the faith. You can't hold the faith and do that. They are mutually exclusive. Jesus is the Lord of glory. We don't bestow value. Jesus alone does. And he says that we are beloved and redeemed. In John 5, Jesus was speaking with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the uber-religious of his day. Jesus had many a scuffle with them because they thought that they were going to get to heaven based on their good works, on their impressive credentials, which is, flies 
in the face of the whole reason Christ came. It was to say, you can't earn your way to God. You need a Savior. That's the point. And so clearly they weren't going to get along too well. In John 5, Jesus says to them, how can you believe in me when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? That is to say, if you guys are making value judgments based on each other, you have totally missed who I am. I'm the Savior of the world because you need saving. And it doesn't matter what you say about somebody else. It matters what I say about everybody. And I say everybody needs saving. Jesus is the Lord of glory. This is the reason why the faithful should never play favorites. The second reason, it's evidence of an evil inclination. Let's look at verses 2 through 4. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James doesn't mince words. That's why we've named this series Bold Letters from the Blood Brothers. He says the inclination to categorize people by their appearance or wealth is evil. It's evil. It's an evil inclination coming from an evil thought. Well, how is it evil? Well, for one, Jesus warned us frequently about the dangers of being allured by wealth, looking at it and it dazzling us, us being drawn to it. He warned us about that, saying, Matthew 13, 22, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. 1923, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is difficult. It is difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So if you're working from this paradigm in showing favoritism to the poor or to the rich, not only are you dishonoring the poor brother, but you're dishonoring the rich brother as well because you are telling them that their identity is to be found in their stuff. You are pushing them towards the danger that Jesus warned them about, saying, this is where your value is. That's why I'm honoring you. That is not loving. We need to not only not disgrace Poor friends, we need to help our successful friends know that their worth is so much more than their stuff. What they can do for us is irrelevant to their value to us. Their value isn't external to do who they are. Their value is intrinsic based on what Christ, the Lord of glory, has spoken over them. So the reason it's evil is because it's the exact opposite of what Christ says about them, and it's exactly what the devil would want them to think. This is where your security is. Look how people treat you. That feel good. And so, it's an evil inclination. But here's the challenge we all face. Our culture disciples us in exactly the opposite direction. Receiving higher status for what you pay or do is in the air that we breathe. We see it all around. For instance, think of some of the marketing language that is employed, ironically, especially for credit cards, the things we use to buy stuff, such language as elite, or priority, or exclusive, or my personal favorite, preferred. It's so ironic. I remember waiting in line to enter an airplane when it really hit me for the first time just how kind of overt this is. There was two lines, 
Mine was general boarding. And then there was preferred boarding. And I actually saw it, something like the scales fell, and I was like, that's just mean. <laughs> so they don't, they don't prefer, uh, preferred boarding. We prefer. Well, why do they prefer those people? Well, it's because they pay twice as much. <laughs> and so they prefer you. You are important if you pay more. James tells us that if we bring the world's value system into the church, if we apply elite or privileged status based on someone's wealth or affluence or fame, that is an evil inclination. That is an evil inclination. 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. John 7, 24, Christ says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now, to be sure, our context is not that of James Church. And I, I would say we don't have a massive chasm between the rich and the poor in our church. And even if we did, clearly nobody's scammering for the preferred seats, which are actually the back, um, which is fine. And in fact, I think PRISM does do a really good job of welcoming everybody. We're, we're kind of known for a as being a friendly church, which I'm thankful for. We're very inclusive and welcoming. At least we strive to be and we, and we want to be. But we can't let ourselves off the hook that fast. You know that. We have to be honest for a minute and ask, where in our lives do we judge by appearances? Maybe it's at work. How do you treat those on your team with the boss who can actually get you elevated? Do you kind of show favoritism, extra niceties to the boss while you kind of scoff or marginalize those below you? How about the homeless person that asks for a meal? How do you respond to them compared to if one of somebody in your community group said, I have nothing to eat tonight? How do we respond? Is that, is that favoritism? I think it's worth considering. So the faithful should never play favorites because it is an evil inclination. The third reason is a rich faith is far more valuable than worldly riches. A rich faith is far more valuable than worldly riches. Verses 5 through 7. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, it's, it's important to be clear here. James is not making a blanket statement, saying all the rich are bad and all the poor are good. Even in these, this politically charged uh, time, uh, it's, it's easy to kind of neatly categorize the 1% is the evil who are hoarding everything, and the 99% are the ones who people are holding back from, so clearly bad and, and clearly good. A nice line down the middle. The Bible flatly contradicts this, and it says your socioeconomic status in no way is a barometer for your character, period. Yet James, like a good pastor, is speaking into a specific context in his church where this was a very pronounced problem. However, he does make an interesting observation that we need to look at carefully here. He says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, catch this, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? That's interesting. That's interesting. What does that mean? Well, for one, 
practically speaking, the less you have physically, the more aware you are of your great need. When you know you are in need, faith is not just a compartment of your life. Faith is your life. Because you don't have the luxury of a conveyor belt of endless comforts to fill all the voids in your soul. And so you are in a posture to receive from God, which will grow your faith. When you are not rich by the world's standards, and, and I should say parenthetically here, when the New Testament says rich, just know it's talking about you. <laughs> it's talking about all of us. Most of the world would have no category for the lives we live. And so we are the rich here. When you are not rich by the world's standards, you are far more likely to be rich in faith. But notice that James goes as far as to say that God designed it that way. God chose what is poor to be rich in faith. He means to undermine the world's view of power and prestige and value and significance. He wants to smash our conception of that. Why does he want to do that? Well, Paul actually answers that in 1 Corinthians 1, conveniently enough, so I'm glad you asked. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. In Corinth, to be of noble birth was very significant. This would have spoke directly to their status. You weren't like that. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And here it is. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's why he designed it like this. So that no human could ever boast as if they had done something to earn their standing before God. God is in the business of smashing human pride because all of us are bent towards self-autonomy. For most of us, it would be a bad thing to get a million dollars, if we're honest. And so God means to turn upside down the paradigm of power and success that we have in our minds. In that same trip where I got to go on safari um, back in 2011, uh, I stayed for two and a half weeks in Swaziland at an orphanage called the New Hope Center. And it was there that I actually saw what James is talking about here most vibrantly. I had never seen faith like I did in this place. In that place, every child there was double orphaned, meaning both of their parents were dead. And I sat with the gal who started it, and she just named story after story of unbelievable works of God to provide for them. She would point to just the different buildings, and then that would prompt another story about how a check came for a certain exact amount that they needed. The very land that they had, the king of Swaziland, gave to them. It's unbelievable. And the reason that they were rich in faith is because they knew it wasn't from them. She had no delusion. She had no resources. And by being poor, according to the world standards, man, they had become so rich in faith. And this is what James means when he says, God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. Being in need forces us to rely on God. And maybe you're in a season now of great need, a hard season. I know some of us are. Well, it could be that God is producing a faith right now that is going to go deeper than anything you've ever imagined. He's producing a humility where you'll need to reach out for help from your friends in the church and seeing how they respond will increase your faith. 
A season of need is the breeding ground of a deep faith, friends. And so right now, if you are struggling, be of good cheer knowing, one, that you're not alone. Your church wants to rally around that. And God has designed this season to do a remarkable work in your life, whatever that might look like. Furthermore, when God became a man in Jesus Christ, he didn't come in pomp and circumstance. He came humbly. He came poor. He said, I am amongst you as the one who serves. He said, if you want to go high in the kingdom, you must go low in service. And so the reason the faithful could never show favoritism, because if you do, well then, you reject Christ when he was a man, because he was poor. That was by design. He meant to turn our economic the way we see things upside down on its head. We all are in the need of the same grace. Christ meant to show this. And the fourth and final reason why the faithful should never play favorites is this. It rejects the grace of God, and it drags out the old law. Verses 8 through 11. Follow along with me, if you will. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, but... If you show partiality, you are committing sins and are convicted by the law's transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at just one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery but do murder, well, then you have become a transgressor of the law. Well, if you weren't raised in the church, this could be a a bit confusing. So let me take a moment to explain the point that James is trying to distill for us here. In the Old Testament, God had established a law for his people. It was a reflection of his royal and holy character, and they were to maintain the law. It's what separated them from all the other nations. Well, the problem is, because of our sinful and bent nature, we can't fulfill the law. And so the good, holy law of God now stands in front of us like a Mount Everest of condemnation because we cannot scale it. We can't scale it. And this is the reason we need Jesus Christ. Not only did he take all of our sins, but by his perfect life, he totally fulfilled the law. And so when we place our faith in him, not only does he receive all of our sin in the wrath that that deserves from God, but he gives us a perfect and righteous standing before God. So that law is no longer an Everest of condemnation, but we are blameless according to the law. Galatians 3 uh, draws this out in more detail, saying, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, that is the law. For in Christ you are all sons and daughters of God through faith, That is, if you put your faith in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So here's James' big idea. The cross of Jesus Christ is the great leveler of all humanity, or as someone once wrote, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Each one of us stands shoulder to shoulder in need of the same grace from the same Savior, no superiority, no pretense. We're all just standing under the cross, realizing we are totally level. It smashes every conception the world has of value or honor. 
Everybody is on the same level. But when we show favoritism, when we make judgments and comparisons, James is saying, well, we are now working from the paradigm of the law. But he says, you don't want to do that because now you're condemning yourself. You are jumping out of the ocean of grace that you've been swimming in by making comparisons. You don't want to do that. And friends, the gospel also provides the antidote for not just favoritism, but any inclination towards discrimination that we have in our hearts. The answer isn't trying hard to not have hate in your heart or trying hard to like everybody the same by sheer willpower. The cure to favoritism or any other discrimination is to look at the cross over and over again, realizing this is what it costs to save me. That's humbling. It took the death of Jesus Christ. And man, when that seeps into the marrow of your bones, you won't be inclined to boast, and you won't be inclined to regard people according to the flesh. You regard people according to grace. And this leads us now to James' exhortation for us today, the final two verses. He says, In light of all of this, now so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now to be clear, We don't earn God's mercy by being merciful. However, how we speak and how we act are clear indicators as to whether or not we have experienced the new birth. When you actually have a moment where you experience God's unbelievable grace towards you, that painful moment when you realize you are unholy, you are sinful, and God is a galaxy away from you, what are you going to do? And then you see the answer, Jesus Christ has already done it. Man, it's going to change the way that you look towards each other. It has to. It has to. And if that has no effect on our compassion, man, we need to ask, have we been born again? And that's where James leaves us. And I wanted to end by showing a short video that we watched in our Mercy Ministry meeting a few weeks back, which is a a beautiful and poignant example of what it looks like if we're attentive in our lives, if we're attentive to the law of liberty, if we see ourselves as ministers of reconciliation that God has called not to make distinctions, but to see everyone on the same ground and the same grace that is needed. And so, yeah.